Welcome everyone to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I interviewed longtime friend of High Fives, Hutch Hutchinson, who is a senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. This episode is absolutely full of great historical information. Take notes if necessary or go back and listen again as Hutch shares the history of outdoor education. Hutch, thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I I love your podcast and uh, and yeah, I'm I'm honored to be a part of it. And especially when you lay it on that thick at the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> I was slapping it on. I was going to say you are setting the bar high, my friend. <laughs> people, you you want people to be disappointed. Yeah. So <laughs> the most the most interesting man in the world. Here he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, I, I don't know that I can aspire to that. So 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 yeah. So I'm I'm Hutch. Uh, I, as you said, I'm a senior lecturer at uh, the Questrom School of Business in the Management and Organizations Department, which uh, until recently was the Organizational Behavior Department. And I think that for, for the folks that aren't familiar with business school or business school language, what I tell my parents I do yeah. is that I teach corporate people how to play well with others. And that always seems to, to help people figure out exactly what I do. But what I what I do within the Questrom curriculum and, and in the in the university is I teach teaming or team development, leadership development in group contexts, and and I do that in the undergraduate program, uh, both within the business school and across the university. Uh, I do it in the MBA program, our our full time MBA. I do it in our online MBA, which is launching this fall, and I do it in our masters in business or uh, business analytics course, our MSBA course, um, hmm. as well as lots of other places. Um, you know, it, I get drawn into doing teaming stuff. We have a program called the Cross College Challenge, which is a, a really exciting kind of capstone experience at the university and, and has a major team component. So I teach in that program as well. And, and I, I get to work with a lot of the different departments and I do faculty trainings at the med school. I do, you know, a whole variety of different programs to help folks think about how do they work more effectively in teams uh, with each other, and mm-hmm. as well as a fair amount of, of uh, corporate training and other programs as well. I, I do some work with Outward Bound Professional on Thompson Island. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of my uh, that's my deal. What I do, and I think the the, the connection between yourself and and me uh, in terms of where we met, I've, you were a you did some contract work for High Five. Um, and that's how I connected with you doing also contract work. And then subsequently, we've interacted with each other a bunch through AEE, the Association for Experiential Education, which I know that means a lot to the both of us. What's the first interaction that you had to this world? Well, I, I would say my earliest interactions with experiential ed were before I knew what experiential ed was. Mm. Um and so I grew up in the Berkshires, uh, in, in Western Massachusetts, um, at the base of Mount Greylock. And, and so they're, they're, you know, and, you know, in the eighties in, uh, in, in the Berkshire, North Berkshire, there, there wasn't a lot going on as opposed to, to now when there's still not a lot going on, but, <laughs> but, uh, but now that there's better art museums and the, but it was for a kid growing up, it was playing in the woods was awesome. That was the thing that we had ready access to do. 
And I got involved in Cub Scouting initially when I was in, I think, second grade when they launched what was called Tiger Cubs. And I ended up staying in, in scouting all the way through graduating from high school. And, and I went, uh, became an Eagle Scout. You know, I, I was very active in our troop. Um, and I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, on weekends, we would just meet up at the scout hall or we'd meet up at, you know, somebody's house and just disappear up into the woods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mount Greylock State Reservation is this great big, you know, state park. It's the biggest state park in Massachusetts. So you can get nice and lost uh, easily up there, mm -hmm. um, lost in a good way. You know, yep. not like search parties coming out for you, but, yep. you know, just finding cool little places to camp and to, to hang out. And, you know, it, it was it was awesome. I loved mm -hmm. it. And and it was, you know, sometimes it was structured and it was a scout trip. Sometimes it was just a bunch of us who were scouts, who our parents trusted us to go out and play in the woods and be safe. And so we could disappear and do that. And, and I really, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so when I went to college, I wanted to be a history teacher. So I went to Gettysburg College. Um, because I figured, you know, Gettysburg was, a, uh, uh, you know, I loved the civil war and <laughs> you, can't, you can't get a better spot than Gettysburg. Yeah. And, uh, and I just fell in love with being there. And, and so I went there and I, I went down the road to become a history major and, and, uh, education minor and get my certification. And my sophomore year, they started an experiential ed program called the Gettysburg Recreational Adventure Board or GRAB, um, <laughs> And, uh, and so grab was started and the, and I was one of the, the first staff hired to be on the program in a large, I mean, I didn't know anything that it was a field an industry. I didn't know what, I'd never known what a ropes course was. Yep. Like I didn't have any, you know, I, I had backpacking experience in the context of just grabbing a can of beans and some hot dogs and a lighter and mm -hmm. that's backpacking. Right. And yep. so not like nothing dehydrated, nothing like no real equipment, no real, you know, everything was army surplus, you know, that mm. was how scouts went. And so there was this whole new world that opened up to me. And, and I remember my senior year, uh, we went to our first AEE conference and I realized that it, not only was it a whole new world, but there were lots of people who lived in that world mm -hmm. and they were doing amazing things. And, and so I had, at that, and I, we had done lots of training in my junior year and senior year, and I had led a spring break trip. That was a, that's a whole nother long, amazing story of just how experiential ed really opened up my eyes of potential and what mm -hmm. it could be. And, and it was wonderful, you know, and, and John Regenton, who was the director of the program, uh, was just an inspirational leader throughout all this to really kind of learn what possibilities are mm -hmm. in experiential ed and then what possibilities existed in us as his students. When I graduated, I, I had realized that I wanted to be a teacher. I was certified as a teacher. I had all those things, but I, I wasn't ready to go into the classroom. I felt like at, at that point in time, you know, not married, don't have a mortgage, don't, you know, 22, this is the time to work in outdoor ed. And so I, the college's program had grown to where they needed another full-time person. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to talk my way into that job. And, and so I started running trips every weekend and, and being in the field and running ropes courses. And, um, and, and it was awesome. Like I loved it. And, uh, you know, there wasn't much for pay, but I didn't need much, you know? And so it was, uh, I was able to pay the bills and keep paying on my loans and, you know, get where I needed to be. And, and I loved it. And so yeah. I did that for a couple of years and then a few other odd jobs. Cause that was just an academic year job. And, you know, I worked in the summer doing various things and, and then, you know, went on to, uh, Minnesota state Mankato. 
got my master's uh, in experiential ed. Uh, actually, with Jen Stanchfield, she was she and I were classmates, which is how I got to know High Five. Because yeah. shortly after we both graduated, she ended up going to, to Brattleboro and, mm-hmm. and High Five. And uh, so, you know, Mankato was amazing. Uh, Jasper Hunt was was and is the most inspirational professor I've ever had, um, and and is still just inspirational. So that was just a great experience. And then at the end of that, I was like, okay, I'm ready to get in the classroom. I've had my experiential. Ed. Now I'm going to take all mm-hmm. that experiential ed and I'm going to go into a classroom mode. And I was doing some uh, some teaching at a project-based charter school and I, that was great. And I'm like, all right, this is, I'm going to go for it. And then a position opened up in, in uh, at Lynchburg College in Virginia. They had an outdoor ed program that had basically been run into the ground and, and they wanted someone to come in and bring it back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So uh, I'll go into the classroom later. And, and I went down to Virginia and, and built this program called New Horizons uh, or rebuilt the program. Did that for four years. We, you know, there was a, uh, by the time we were done, there was, we were doing backpacking and rock climbing and caving and vertical caving and, and canoeing, kayaking, ropes mm-hmm. course. Uh, and then there was a, not just recreational programs, but there was a um, minor in outdoor recreation that I ended up building and teaching all the courses in. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was super fun, but it was, you know, my wife and I, uh, I married my high school sweetheart. And so we, who was with me throughout all this, we wanted to come back to new England to raise a family. And so we moved up here to work at, for her to go to Antioch over in Keene, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Um, and we found the Sargent center for outdoor education. And so I started teaching or working at the Sargent center, uh, in their conference department, basically running college programs mm-hmm. for the university and then for colleges all over and the ropes course and, you know, just programs at the camp and, and Sergeant is still one of the most amazing classrooms that I've ever taught in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that whole camp experience and, 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 uh, you know, environmental ed, middle school programs and, and corporate programs and college students and, yeah, it was great, and it, and it got me here in the Monadnock region, which I completely fell in love with in mm-hmm. New Hampshire, and uh, never left. You mentioned Jasper, who also gave you that inspiration or led you through something, and was a great leader. What do you think that they had that you could gleam as being essential to you staying in this field? Well, I think they did two things. One is they they modeled a, a, a quality of life that was what I wanted, and and I saw in what they were doing. Uh, a, a future that I liked. And I think the other part that they did was they made it accessible. So they opened up opportunities. They said, hey, you know, do you want to do this? Mm. Or, you know, what you should do is this. Or do you know what I really see in what you're doing is this. You yes. should run with it. You know, everything was always about the student. Mm-hmm. And and that's the thing. I mean, the thing about experiential ed more so than than the industrial model of education is that the focus is on the student, not the learning objective or mm-hmm. the the structure or the system or the tax base or the you yep. know the, yep. the not that everything can always be about the student. But with experiential ed, there is that strong focus on what is the student developing. Mm-hmm. How are they getting to where they need to go? And, and even, you know, John Regenton at, at Gettysburg, you know, we had this amazing recreation, outdoor recreation program, but it really wasn't an outdoor recreation program. It was all grounded in student development, <laughs> higher education theory. Yep. So, so we, and we were getting that, like we were getting chickering and all these things. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and as opposed to, in addition to how to tie a figure eight knot, 
you know, and getting those kind of things to really understand the whys behind the what and the impact we can have. And that was what I learned at Gettysburg was that I could do more in a day on a ropes course than a whole semester in a classroom. Yep. Um, and I learned that and I, and I was in that student teaching mode. I was in the classroom, right? And yeah. I was seeing what I could do and what the limitations were and, and the impact and the, the, all those things. And, and what I, what I kept thinking was, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be able to get all of my students on a ropes course or in the back country, but I can figure out how to distill elements of that experience to then be able to bring that more effectively in the classroom. And, and a lot of the Gettysburg model was, you know, these, the students, myself, uh, my colleagues, we were the ones running leadership programs for Greek life and, and student government and things like that. And we learned how to do that, not just by parroting content, mm -hmm. but by being in leadership positions, running recreational programs, dealing with uncertainty and weather and, and, medical conditions and, and all those things in the backcountry, which then gave us an authenticity to what we were doing. And, you know, as a 20 year old kid, that's a lot of, that's a lot to go to your question of what is it that those leaders, folks like John, folks like Jasper really did was mm. they, they didn't just tell you there's more in you than you think they showed you there was more in you than you thought. One of the things that I really felt going into in this kind of pushback of not going into the classroom, it said everything about the environment but nothing about the teachers. And I think like I have, I have an immense respect for classroom teachers and folks mm -hmm. that do it, do it well. Mm -hmm. I, and that respect has absolutely skyrocketed since this oh, whole yeah. pandemic. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing because nobody's been trained to do this. No. It, it's, it's figuring out and having the passion and it, the willingness to recognize your kids and what they need and how to serve them when you're not allowed to physically be with them. Mm -hmm. And, and to see how well they're doing that is just amazing. And, but, but I, you know, when I was coming out of college, it was the, the beginnings of the no child left behind movement mm -hmm. and really pushing standardized testing. Everything is about the test, mm -hmm. not the kid. Mm -hmm. And, and that made me so uncomfortable knowing all the things about the kid that allow that prevent them from performing well on a standardized test. And, and even like when I was going to, to Mankato, uh, I was, I was very, very much about like, I'm not going to take the GREs. Like I refuse to take a standardized test mm -hmm. to get into a college, to, for, to get a graduate program in a theory of education that argues why standardized testing is, is inaccurate and possibly morally wrong. Yeah. Right. That I'm just not willing to manage that hypocrisy. And, and so <laughs> when, uh, when I went to, when I went to apply to Mankato, all the graduate programs at Minnesota State required the GREs, with the exception of experiential ed. And, and when I got there, I, I talked to Jasper, who was my advisor about this, and he, and he said he had argued for 10 years to get that requirement removed. And finally, they let him take it off for the exact same reason. And, yep. and, uh, and when I eventually went to BU for my PhD, and I, I told a colleague of mine that I was that was my moral stance. And I'm like, I'm not going to take the GREs. And she kind of looked at me and she goes, yeah, it was good. You made the moral stand on that, but the GREs just, it's, you're not going to win that argument. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, and I, I think that decision of, of going into the classroom and what's the environment that works and, and what's the environment that you can make the most impact. And I think mm -hmm. when you, when you talk to folks that are, that their vocation, their calling is to teach. 
the key question they're asking is always, what's the way that I can best impact students and empower and uplift students? And those kind of questions, when they're answered around what's the environment that can most do that, you know, it, it, it's going to be different for different kids and different populations. And, and you know, I, I think outdoor education is really powerful, but I recognize the privilege in that. Mm. I recognize that not every kid is going to have the childhood that, that I hit had yep. or, mm-hmm. or your daughter has living mm-hmm. in, in rural Vermont yep. and to be able to go out and explore those woods. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm, I'm very hesitant to say that that's the best way, but recognize that it was given the environment that I grew up in and, and it was the best way for me. Yeah. Um, and, and given what I've been able to see and do and create opportunities to be a part of opportunities being created for kids to have those experiences, it really can be an amazing thing for them. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, that's, that's not the same for everybody. You touched on it briefly and I, this was, I was leading that away also about your dissertation. And for me, this combines two parts. One, of course, this is a good history, the history on outdoor education. But also for you, this is a pairing of your two big interests and loves into one piece. And I always tell people when I'm training people, try to find the things that you enjoy and bring them authentically into your facilitation in some way. Bring it into the work that you do, because I think the only boosts the quality of your work when you bring a love something that you're passionate about and try to put it in now if you're bringing in a so far removed that doesn't make sense that's odd but if you have a way to be able to bring those passions in for you you brought together your love of the outdoors and your love of history into your dissertation without reading the whole dissertation what (laughs) what would you say were like key learnings that you took from doing that or things that you think are really cool factoids to be able to share with people listening what really got me going with the the experiential ed with the dissertation piece thing was that I'm looking at, so Sergeant Camp opened up in 1912 and it opened about three as a, as a camp to train women to be outdoor educators. Hmm. Um, the, the purpose of it was so that women could basically have a college degree in outdoor education hmm. um, from Sergeant College, which is a, a normal school, a teaching college in, in Cambridge, focused on physical education for women only. Um, so really progressive, really progressive for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and keep in mind, the Girl Scouts started in March of 1912. Sergeant camp started in June of 1912. So, oh, and, wow. and there was only a, a handful of summer camps for women any at that point, any anywhere. You know, I think the first one opened up here in New Hampshire in like 1901 or 1900. So there, there, there's not a lot around. But the, and so what I kept thinking, I, I'd go to the AEE conferences and we'd talk about, experiential ed starting with Kurt Hahn in World War II. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's multiple generations of people who grew up in with outdoor education before Kurt Hahn even came along. Yeah. Um, so there's something missing in this story that we tell ourselves. And so what I tried to do in the dissertation as I moved away, starting with Dudley Sargent, who founded the camp and using him as kind of a touch point to build back to figure out where did he get the idea mm. and, and where did these ideas emerge? And, and again, as a historian and, and as a, an Americanist, American studies person to really look at where does it emerge in the literature? Where does it emerge in the art? Like, where is there this shift? 
And what I ended up kind of going to and finding is that what you really have from 1800 to 1900 in the United States, you have a complete transformation in, in two different areas that create outdoor education. The first is a complete revolution in the way that we view the landscape and the environment. And the second is a complete revolution in how we view youth. And, and really, if you go before 1800, right, you look at Puritan New England and, and, and you know, that kind of even right through the revolution. Children are dark. They are evil. They are just little adults <laughs> that need to be broken and need to be uh, disciplined in order to be of use. Similarly, the land is wild and dark and uh. evil and needs to be broken and cultivated in order to be of use. And so what you see is this mindset of we have to break our children and we have to break the wilderness in order to have a good country. And what starts to happen in about the 1820s, 1830s is this revolution in, in thought really driven by romanticism and, and the romantic movement. And, and it emerges with the Hudson River School in art that, you know, Thomas Cole and, and, and a lot of these are, are artists start to say, you know, what really makes America unique is the wilderness. Mm -hmm. and, and they start changing the way they represent the wilderness. In some ways, that darkness that is in there, that sublime power that's in the wilderness, mm -hmm. there's value in that. And then you see in, in literature, you see like James Fenimore Cooper, who, who basically lays out with the, the leather stocking tales, the last Mohegans, of course, is the one everybody knows, but mm -hmm. there's a whole series of those books and they were wildly popular. Those books lay out this idea that, you know, the characters that were civilized, the well-educated, the, all those folks, they're, they're not the heroes. It's the people who are directly connected to the land <laughs> that were the heroes. Right. And, yep. and, and then this, there's so much you learn and you read those stories of these adventure stories where you're leaping out under the stars, you're sitting by a campfire, you're eating food that you're, you're, you've caught by fishing or, or you're, you're canoeing, you're, you're doing all these things that, you know, a hundred years later are the curriculum of outdoor education. And then, and then you have the transcendentalist movement, which really kind of crystallizes all of it with Ralph Waldo Emerson being the most important in that, but Henry David Thoreau, Louisa May Alcott, Bronson Alcott, um, Margaret Fuller, uh, Elizabeth Peabody, all these, these transcendentalist authors that really starting around 1836 completely lay out this argument that children are not dark and evil and need to be broken, that children have an, air, an element of innocence to them mm. and a natural purity to them. That should be cultivated, that we should fan those fires, that the corruption comes from what we're forcing upon them, yep. and that the wilderness is inherently a good place. And we can learn from the wilderness, not just about like plants and animals, but about, mm -hmm. about ourselves, that by being in the natural world, we can transcend ourselves and become more of who we're meant to be. Mm -hmm. And so they lay this whole thing out in their writings and, wow. and create programs in schools that are, are inspired by this and, and move in that direction. Um, some of which, I mean, the 1830s, when this is happening is also when there's this Boston takes this really creative, innovative approach to dealing with orphans and they give them an island and they say, look, you're going to have this island as an orphanage, as a school 
to learn from the natural world mm-hmm. and to learn from each other so that you can be productive members of society. And, and that was the Boston Farm School, I think 1833, on Thompson Island. Uh, the, oh. Thompson Island has since 1833 been a school dedicated uh. to experiential education. I don't think there's an older experiential ed program in the world. Now, of course, it's been multiple iterations of the program, but that space, that island has had that purpose since this kind of romantic revolution mm-hmm. of, you know, not just is the wilderness not bad and the outdoors not bad and our kids aren't bad, but maybe if we put our kids in the natural world, that's the healthiest place for them to grow. And, and so you see throughout the 19th century experiments in this and, and ways to get these kids out that by the time the 1880s comes along, you see this the birth of the summer camp movement uh, in New Hampshire with Camp Chikorua up on uh, Squam Lake. And from there, it explodes across the rest of the country. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think that still to this day experiential ed outdoor ed is still somewhat of a pseudo education and not taken as seriously as public school private school institutionalized education so there's a historical answer to that and and again i think so go back to the 1830s in in amidst this romantic revolution there's also the industrial revolution right and a need to transform the educational system and so you look at someone like horace mann in massachusetts who you know lays out a new approach to education because again the education before that you're you're going to break the will of the child that's the purpose you've got a a, a teacher who's basically te- in New England everyone needs to learn how to read and write yep. like that's that is essential it's not the same all across the US but in New England it is essential that everyone learns to read and write because the purpose of an education is to read the bible and have salvation that that is and again that I think one of the key things to keep in mind, and this is as a historian, I look at pedagogy as an insight into culture. We teach the next generation the things that we think are absolutely essential for their survival. If you want to understand a culture, look at what they fight about educationally, because what they're fighting for is not just themselves, but what their children are going to need to survive. And, and so and we can we can wax poetic on that later. Yeah. But um, but that's a that is a huge. All my my research is focused on on asking that question. The thing that you see in the in the 1830s, as you have the Industrial Revolution, they needed people to work in factories, and they needed a lot of people to work in factories and come off the farms and come down from the hills. And so, what Horace Mann really lays out is this industrial model of education, where let's get these students to learn to sit in rows mm-hmm. for long periods of time. We're going to build the schools to look like the factories. We're going to replace the 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 uh, foreman with the teacher, right? So we're going to you get used to following orders. If you do exactly what you're told efficiently and effectively, mm-hmm. you will be able to do it again. And then just like you know, nobody had a watch in the 1830s and 40s, so the only time you knew when to go to work and when to take a break was by the ringing of a bell. <laughs> so let's make sure that we train these kids to re- respond to the ringing of a bell. And of, and of course, none of these things existed into our educations, right? What? Those are so. They were created in the 1830s and 40s. Why would we have that today? And 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 so what's what you see is a, a system designed, an educational system designed that valued in de- an industrial workforce hmm. and needed to train an industrial workforce, um, and was exceptional at training an industrial workforce. Hmm. And in the same way that we use, you know, 
you know, Taylorism and, and the, you know, the, the kind of approaches to, to making our factories work more efficiently and effectively and really look at, 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 at products like components of a machine. If we think about our kids as components of a machine, then we can get them to fit that model. So that emerges at the exact same time that Bronson Alcott, Henry David Thoreau, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Elizabeth Peabody, Margaret Fuller, all these folks are putting out an entirely different model that's not focused on getting kids to become factory workers, but trying to get kids to be educated, to be their own selves, to, to find who they are, to be more self-reflective, to be more um, innovative, more creative, mm-hmm. more closely in, in touch with the land. But also it didn't force them into a model. It was much more Socratic. It went way back to the the Greek approach of you know of the Socratic method, which is facilitation. You know, again, it's when when I started at Mankato, the first things we read was Socrates because he's a master facilitator. The, I never read Socrates when I was being trained to be a classroom educator in the you know twentieth century. But they're very different philosophical points of departure. And yeah. what you see throughout the nineteenth century is this competition between how are we going to train the industrialized workforce and how are we going to train people to be innovative and creative and their own selves and develop them educationally. That fissure has never gone away. And and I think, and I don't, people often refer to what we see in the classroom, most classrooms as traditional education. And I refuse to use that term Mm. because experiential is as old or older (laughs) than what people... So I just call it the industrial, industrial model of education yeah. because I think that's accurate. Yeah. The other part is that as experiential educators, if we think that we're in some kind of centuries old conflict with tradition, it makes us always think that we're uh, rebellious, just revolutionaries yeah. and rebellious. And what's wrong with us? What are we missing? And the reality is it's a different tool for a different job. We're building, and, and it's also about what cultures are you trying to cultivate, mm-hmm. right? If you want people to have a deep respect for the land you and, and, a, and an understanding of science and the scientific method and how to really learn from your experience and reflect on situations and build their own character and confidence and, and grit, if you, you know, to use that, that, that term that gets thrown around a lot mm-hmm. now, you, you can't do it in a factory setting. Mm-hmm. You do it in an experiential setting. Now, that doesn't have to be, you know, Walden Pond, but it, it does have to be a student-centered approach to learning as mm-hmm. opposed to a system-centered approach at learning. And I would imagine that your it's, sort of experiencing through your career the where those two worlds meet anyway, which is probably different than how your mindset was when you were younger, being like anti-establishment in terms of the 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 world of education. But you're now doing experiential education at a business school, <laughs> so, yeah. well, so it's well, like it's funny. You know? I, I, one of my favorite examples of this, and and this is where my own naivete hit a wall pretty quick. So as an experiential educator who's student centered. The reality is I don't know what my students need to learn until I've met them, Mm. right? And worked with them and Mm -hmm. assessed them. And then we can look at how do we help them grow and develop in the direction that they need to learn. In a a tier one research university that is very student-centered, and I'm not not knocking BU, I've been amazingly impressed, especially through this 
a pandemic situation about how their number one focus is the students. And I love that. But systems and models of higher education are structured around disciplines and models. And it's more it's more industrial than than it would like to, to probably be. But I remember sitting down and, and having a curriculum meeting and somebody asking me about my class and saying, well, what is it you're what is it they're going to learn in that class? And I <laughs> yeah. responded with a very experiential, like, well, I don't know. I haven't met the students yet. I don't yeah. know what they need to learn. Yeah. And I just got blank stares from the whole, and I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> not the words to say that was not right. And then, so then I kind of dialed back and I had to really think about like, what could they learn? What are they likely to learn? What can I, I can't guarantee yeah. what they can learn. I, I don't, you, you, as, as an experienced educator, you don't control what your students learn. You control inputs and you can control or, mm. and define outputs, yep. but you can't control their learning. And that's a, a Keith King is a, of course, great mentor. And, and mm-hmm. for many of us, I, I don't want to presume to know what students learn, but I, I, I learned how to be more specific in my language around what they are likely to get from the experience. And what can I, what are my deliverables that I'm asking for? And what am I hoping and again, it's it's trying to find how do you, not everybody's going to figure that out. Not everybody's going to meet those objectives. Some people are going to have other things they really need to learn than what you expect. But as a teacher, we don't control, they're not machines. They're not widgets. The students are going to learn what they need to learn at that moment in time. If you were to boil down your your experiences over the last however many years in terms of this field, and we've we've sort of touched on some tips anyway of like things to be aware of as an emerging professional. But I w- I remember us having a conversation. It was at a cafe when we were planning for uh, Northeast AE about mentorship and our role that we play in helping people in our field. You, what what advice would you give to an emerging professional? And I will just add, go to AE, you know, be a part of those uh, associations and go to those conferences. But what other advice would you give? I've found throughout my entire career, the Association for Experiential Ed has been my intellectual home, professional mm-hmm. home, pedagogic home. I've learned more and gained more from that association than, than any other professional organization I've been a part of. Uh, not, and that's different. Other folks are going to be drawn to other associations and, and for various reasons. I've gone to different conferences and I, I don't know that I've ever gone to a bad conference per se. But the thing that I always love about AEE is the breadth of experiences that just open up my my doors and intellectually. Mm-hmm. Like I uh, go into AEE, so I teach in business school. I go to AEE and I'll go to workshops on from adventure therapists yeah. because understanding trauma and, and and the neurology of of how people process trauma and in crisis moments and under stressful environments that's really helpful. But I'm never going to see that at a business school conference, and I'm not going to be exposed to those experts in that. And yet, still be able to go do workshops on you know experience based training and development and and how to develop corporate leaders, mm-hmm. right? I, I, you get both and both done well. And that's just really exciting. But that's a sidebar. And and, the, and there's a photo that's been going around. It seems to be appear on an every other AE email that I get. It's the photo of me with my leaning my head on your shoulder when we were in Florida. <laughs> that photo when appears. You said, 
when you said the photo was going around, I'm like, man, I know the photo you're talking about. <laughs> that yeah. photo is everywhere. But, it is. It, we're, it's like we're cuddling, yeah. like sitting by a fire yeah. in Orlando, like the last place you need to sit by a me, fire. Me, but you, Ali Jackson, Fraser, and Tara Flippo. Yep. But yep. you know, yep. but I think that you know that some as much as that that photo keeps appearing, that does sum up a for me. I think yeah. to an extent as well. You think about even the four people in that in that space. Mm-hmm. We all do different yeah. jobs, but we're it's it's a family it feels a family we're, a connection is above content for me I, that's the reason i always drawn to it but i the same things you suggested there's so much variety of learning that occurs well and i think again i i said earlier the idea of a vocation that that a true teacher is a, it follows a vocation and and you can practice a vocation in a lot of different places and thinking about how you practice that in in different ways with different populations and and sometimes getting paid sometimes not getting paid but there's there's something about the soul that's mm. tied into that and and when you surround yourself with people who are similarly following that vocation it is it's an it's a powerful thing and it, and again it's one of those things that i've always loved about aee because you do have these folks that practice it in different environments with different populations that folks who work with at risk youth all the time and i do some of that work on a volunteer basis man the folks that do it professionally i just have such a respect for and mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of folks that roll their eyes at having to work with corporate groups you know and and i love them i love working with adult populations mm-hmm. and, and graduate students and but there's you know there's different reasons why and there's different things and there's different elements of it but it's still that vocation and the impact that you can make on people and draw out who they are meant to be um and draw out those potentials and those ideas that you know, there's more in you than you think. Again, mm-hmm. to go back to Kurt Hahn. But so, what advice uh, to get? I think for for emerging professionals, for new folks, I think one is to just be a sponge and and listen to all the different options that are out there. Yeah. Um. I, I think people often think that there's a, a straight line between A and B. Do this job mm-hmm. and you get that. And mm-hmm. again, I think we're also conditioned that there's a correct answer on the exam. Right. And life, it's, if school was supposed to prepare us for life and exams were how we were assessed, high stakes testing, then there must be a correct answer. And I, I, there isn't. There's a lot of correct answers. There's a lot of incorrect answers. But you generally don't know until after you've made them. Yeah. Right. Or after you've seen other people make them. One of the things that uh, I really saw was that folks that I think it's really hard to maintain a family life in the field. And I really wanted to have a family. And so I didn't want to have a field position well into my 30s, right? That was something I saw. And I saw people go through. I'm like, you know what? I, I want to raise kids. I want to have a, a, a family life. And and so I've got to figure out a way around it, you know, and and, and how to be engaged and, and still working in the outdoors and, and practicing my vocation while also being able to raise my kids. And, and so... I, you don't find the one person who does it the way you want to do it and then just model after them. You've got to have multiple mentors. You've got to have multiple folks that a little bit of each of what they're doing gives you that direction and that niche to figure out what you want. And that requires networking. That requires, and, and sometimes mentors are folks that are demonstrating what you absolutely do not want in your life. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, this is good to know. I totally yeah. do not want that experience. And, and so you can rule that out and that helps you figure out not what's the answer, but what impacts the answer. Mm. But, and I think the other part is that when you do that and you're, you're really trying to figure out the arc, 
you are more prepared to respond to the crises around you and mm -hmm. you are more prepared to respond to the the situations that emerge and the opportunities that emerge in the 80s it was a great career plan to you know become a travel agent you know mm -hmm. how many travel agents do we know now you know we have travelocity think about all the folks that you know built up blockbuster video franchises you know that the the world changes dramatically yeah. and and we've got to be able to not only are we not going to follow in someone's footsteps, but the the their own footsteps aren't necessarily going to give us, they're not necessarily going in the direction we want because we don't know how the world's changing. And I think, you know, looking at my course within BU, when the economy collapsed in 08, 09, I, I thought it was over. I, I, I had no idea how we were going to get out of that situation. And it ended up being opening up doors that I never realized. And and I remember, you know, again, when I was saying I shouldn't teach a business, well, what do I know about business? And the reality is I actually knew a lot more than I thought I did. And as an experiential educator, you learn from where you are and you grow and change. And I think that's a key thing is that we're, there is more in us than we think. Mm -hmm. and, and it's from those different experiences. And I, and I see that and feel that right now in what the world is going through. Mm -hmm. This is really hard and there's a lot of uncertainty. But there's also a lot of opportunity, mm. you know, and again, I think you look at experiential educators, the role of experiential education as everything eases up. People in this field are very mindful of trauma informed teaching. They're very mindful of how to build personal connection in, in appropriate and intentional ways. And it's part of what we do. That is the absolute most high demand thing that we will need as a culture as we emerge out of this. You know, and I think that when we really focus in on that, you know, in the moment we, we've got to survive, you know, it's like when you, you're paddling down a river and, you know, you're mm -hmm. in the white water, you don't say, shit, I should have gone river left and I went river right. And now you just paddle. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get through. You can't, yep. well, we're paddling right now, but no rapids last forever. Yep. Uh, no storm lasts forever. And, and so we will come out the other side of this. And as experiential educators who are focused on the needs of our students who are empathetic by training, as opposed to being industrial by our training and our framework. And that's, I think that's what I've seen in my kids' teachers is how focused they are on the kids. And that's why they're so successful, yep. right? It's not that their, their standardized test scores are high. It's that their their humanity is high. I, so I think that there's a there's great opportunities that'll emerge that we don't feel that way right now, and we don't necessarily see that. It's not going to be on the news, but that's where communities like AEE and those groups of folks that have those vocations are essential to keep that keep connected with that or to connect with that. I appreciate both two things from you, Hutch, and I want to make sure they're heard. One is your ability to continuously connect. We've talked about having people that we look up to and people we glean information from. You are one of those people for me. So I appreciate you being willing to take the time and chatting. You can get me all teary up. Yeah. And if only I could give you, <laughs> give you a, a physical hug because Hutch is one of the best huggers in the known universe. So <laughs> be all sorts of hugs soon enough. Yes, absolutely. We'll save them up. All right. Thanks, Hutch. All right. Bye. Bye, my friend. Be well. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about 
Thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting us to go the guy. <laughs>